Hey guys, welcome back to Four Eyes, the podcast series that gives you a clear view into the optometry world across Canada and the US. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Amrit Bilku. I'm Dr. Deepon Kar. Hi, I'm Dr. Bravinder Rindava. And I'm Dr. Alex Kuhn. Okay, so Dr. Tanya Khan, thank you again for coming on to our podcast. And for all of our listeners who don't know who you are yet, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, so uh, I'm Tanya Khan. I am a board certified ophthalmologist and a fellowship trained oculoplastic surgeon. I'm currently practicing in Austin. I've been here for about four and a half years in Texas. Um, and so my interests primarily at this point are in oculoplastics itself. So consisting mainly of eyelid surgery, um, any type of eyelid pathology, like eyelid cancer diagnosis, reconstruction, um, nasal lacrimal issues, um, orbit uh, pathology, and then the aesthetics world, which is kind of limitless. So, um, <laughs> but um, it's definitely a super exciting field. I feel like every day, you know, has new challenges, um, you know, new like out of the box kind of solutions. Um, you know, it, it's a field that allows us to be creative um, with our approaches, combining surgery with non-invasive techniques and um, uh, yeah, incorporating principles from like plastic surgery, from dermatology, from ophthalmology, um, but you know, just um, yeah, constantly being on our feet. It's, I'm sure it's such a rewarding part of ophthalmology too, because you just see all the positive results from patients. Um, so yeah, it, it's really interesting, um, to do, you know, reconstructive surgeries, um, and, you know, helping patients to see better and look better and feel better. Um, so how did you become interested in oculoplastics and reconstructive surgery? Yeah. Um, so I went to Duke for medical school in North Carolina, um, and we have a bit of an interesting curriculum. So we actually do our book study in one year instead of two, and then we get into our clinical rotations our second year. So um, I did a um, kind of a mini ophthalmology elective early on in my second year and just really loved ophthalmology. Um, we got to kind of rotate around the different subspecialties. Um, and I think immediately I just kind of fell in love with oculoplastics. Um, you know, I liked um, the types of things we were doing in terms of diagnosing like eyelid um, issues. Um, you know, no two patients were exactly the same. And I think visually as a medical student, oculoplastics was something we could appreciate right away. Or, you know, when I got to um, rotate again on the, um, uh, on the service a couple of years later, like I could put in stitches because it wasn't under the scope. So, um, it was cool because I felt more involved, um, in the, um, in the service, even just as a student, whereas cataract surgeries are a little difficult to appreciate from afar, just watching on the videos. <laughs> um, and yeah. certainly when you're a resident, you're like, okay, <laughs> like I understand the complexity of this. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, so, um, I think, um, I like the, you know, the community of like peers and colleagues in there. Um, I, I felt like everyone was very collegial. Um, I like the um, interdisciplinary kind of um, approaches. Sometimes we're working with neurosurgery or, um, you know, plastic surgery, uh, different fields to, um, you know, attack different things, um, you know, with a, a multidisciplinary approach. 
So on a day-to-day basis, what are the most common types of procedures you're performing or the most common ocular conditions you're dealing with? So my main referrals would probably be um, just like bread and butter, like you know, drooping upper eyelids. Um, yeah. so dramatic entosis, and like that alone could probably keep me busy, <laughs> you know, <Yeah>. for, like <laughs> forever. Um, so, I mean, I, you know, I diagnose a lot of that, whether it's medical or cosmetic. So, you know, I do get both. I get people who, um, you know, like truly are suffering because their vision is just being, you know, impaired by the droopiness of the lids. Mm -hmm. Um, Or, you know, I do get some younger patients who um, just don't like the way, you know, their lids look, or um, a lot of women are struggling with like putting on makeup and you know, just feel like, um, it ages them prematurely. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, I think ptosis especially is a, um, very underdiagnosed entity just in medicine overall. And I think, you know, people, um, jump to the conclusion that like it's eyelid surgery, it's plastic surgery. So it's for cosmetic reasons, but truly, I mean, I think there's a lot of people walking around with, you know, just like they're raising their foreheads all the time or their brows you know, just to be able to open their lids. Um, and so I think it's really rewarding actually to see these patients like who've been living with this for years, you know, it's just a gradual process, but once they have the surgery, they're like, wow, you know, it it made a huge difference. So, um, I think that those would be the two most common things, but then I probably see a good amount of like styes and chalazia as well, which is totally fine. I mean, I think that's, you know, par for the course. And I, I actually don't mind treating them primarily instead of general ophthalmology sometimes because I do feel um, so inoculoplastic sometimes our approach is even though we're more surgical is try to start as non-invasive as possible and work our way up. So, um, like doing steroid injections sometimes is very helpful. Um, and it minimizes the amount of scar tissue that we would have to create by doing an incisional, you know, drainage, um, of the chalazine or stye. Um, and it tends to work pretty quickly in most people. So, um, yeah, I mean, pretty much, I would say like 95% of people will respond well to steroid injections, which is pretty neat. Um, um, I definitely have a lot of people who come in, um, asking to look a little more refreshed or younger. And so Mm -hmm. sometimes like tear trough or under eye filler has been very popular as of late. I think, especially here we are on this video conference and like, we all look at ourselves. Right. And so I think we've definitely seen a huge uptick in um, cosmetic procedures, again, both, you know, non-invasive or non-surgical as well as mm-hmm. surgical. So um, we've been doing a lot of like fillers and Botox, um, laser resurfacing, um, chemical peels and skincare. Um, so it's it's been good. Um, it's funny that you mentioned ptosis because, you know, I also, I never talk to my patients about um, you know, oculoplastic surgery, when they have a mild ptosis, that's not within their, like, um, their visual axis. Mm -hmm. So even like, I don't even bring it up or I don't even think to ask them, like, does this bother you? Is this, you know, how long has this been here? Um, you know, I just, I just always feel like ptosis lid surgery is for when it's affecting your field of vision. So how, how can us optometrists, start this conversation 
and also make patients feel more open to surgery because you know, then if we do mention surgery, a lot of people get nervous or they say, yeah, oh, it's cosmetic. I, you know, I don't want to do it. How can we have this conversation with our patients to get them in that consultation room with you for surgeries like that? So I agree. You know, I mean, I think, um, in the most non-confrontational way possible, because I get it, like you're commenting on people's appearance. Yeah. <laughs> it's always a tricky subject. Um, but I think, um, one, well, one thing that I noticed too, is so many people have their brows and their frontalis flexed. And mm-hmm. so, you know, ptosis might be a little bit unmasked or it might be a little masked, I should say, um, because they're, you know, using other muscles to elevate their lids. But if you have them totally relaxed, which is what I will always have them do first thing in the clinic, you know, is like, okay, relax your brows as much as you can, and then really look at it. And typically you'll find a lot of people have more severe ptosis than what, you know, um, Mm. like if they're kind of that borderline person, it might be a little bit worse than what we are seeing, you know, offhand, just because it's their baseline posturing or their, you know, they have a chin up, um, type of posture. And so, um, that's one thing. Um, but number two, I think, um, you know, they probably feel safer being, you know, within an optometry, within a clinical situation where, um, it's part and parcel of our field, right. To mention it like, Hey, look, (laughs) you know, I just a thought, but I don't know if, um, you know, your upper eyelids bother you. Um, but, um, you know, there may be something we can, um, you know, uh, do for it. And, um, and now, you know, and I don't know in Canada, but, um, has, um, Upneak made its way to you guys as well. Okay. No, I I have one patient who's dying to get it, and yeah, she's waiting. I've talked about it. I was just gonna. Yeah. Sorry. I said I was just saying I I talk about it a lot, but I'm just like Canada's probably gonna have to wait another ten years before we get our hands on. (laughs) Okay. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, and not that I haven't used the drop you know, like, honestly, very much. I've actually Mm -hmm. used it for like, um, people who suffered from like, like I've had a patient who came from some uh, outside clinic and had a ptosis from Botox. And so I was like, this might be a good way to get you through, you know, until the Botox wears off. Um, so, I mean, I haven't really tested it out very much. I do know it works well. Um, and, um, it's, it might be a good trial run for patients, you know? Um, so before like they want to commit to doing something surgical, but, um, I think just mentioning that, you know, it's not necessarily a cosmetic procedure, you know, it might be mm-hmm. deemed medically necessary, mm-hmm. uh, but we would just have to have you do, you know, a proper evaluation with the oculoplastic specialist who can take photos, take measurements, um, you know, and, um, really examine and make sure, you know, that you might, but you might fit those requirements. Mm-hmm. Um, I do get sometimes people who are like, they're like, they're told definitely that it'll be insurance. And so then I'm like, well, we just have to wait to see, but there's definitely a huge likelihood that it could be. Um, and then some patients, you know, um, it, like you guys have probably seen this in the past too, but um, like contact lens wears, even if it's not hard contact lens, sometimes we see it with just soft contact lens wears, like who have been, you know, using them for years and years and years. And, um, you know, the more stretch and trauma we put on our lids, the more we're stretching our soft tissues and muscles out. So um, it could be, you know, an issue of someone who's only in their twenties. I mean, I've had patients who just like a unilateral ptosis that ended up not being anything medical. Like I still evaluated them for things that, you know, like I wanted to make sure they didn't have, but, um, it was just from, 
you know, contact lens. And like, for one, for one reason or another, that one side yeah. decided to become droopier. So, um, yeah, just for, for them to know that it's not something to feel self-conscious about, but it truly is like this very common issue. Um, and it's not always cosmetic. I've never thought about that contact lens wearers that you tug your eyelids every single day, twice a day for like your whole life. Yeah. Some people That's like really yank and they, they put oh, yeah. their contacts in. They really <laughs> exactly. stretch that those muscles. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh um, my gosh. So Dr. Khan, you know, you're talking about that Botox induced ptosis. There was mm-hmm. this like very famous um oh, yeah. TikTok, I think, girl where she got her Botox and then she had that ptosis and all these MDs were like ORMDs too, like talking about it. Um, I think she tried up Nika as well. Like that yeah. Guy. So funny enough, I actually responded to that girl directly on her Instagram <laughs> before it became like viral because, yeah. um, so one of my, um, one of our skincare reps like forwarded it to me and she's yeah. like, she's like, what do you think's going on with her? So, <laughs> but um, yeah, so basically that's kind of the interesting phenomenon yeah. of like herrings, right? Herrings law, right? So um you have, um, you know, the, like, so when we inject Botox, typically what I'll do is I'll inject the glabella, which is, um, Mm -hmm. a complex of three muscles that will pull your muscles kind of in towards each other and down. So you get the number 11s and right. So, um, but when you inject above the brow, um, we try to keep about a centimeter above the brow, just so you're not too close to the brow itself. And then you might be in danger of the Botox seeping into the Mm -hmm. upper eyelid muscles. Right. So, um, But with that said, even in like the best, most experienced of hands, like it can happen on occasion. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but so I think what happened in this case was, um, that she got the Botox, um, you know, uh, inadvertently into her levator muscle. Um, and then I think what happened is, um, the other eye, um, sensing that the other eye, the other one was droopy, um, your brain sends extra innervation to both sides. Right. Mm-hmm. But the one that's chemo denervated by the Botox is not going to be able to respond any more than what it's already doing, but the other side will overcompensate. And so now you're going to get like this upper lid retraction mm-hmm. issue on one side and the ptosis on the other side. So, um, yeah, that poor girl, like, yeah. <laughs> I, think, um, I think she did try up Neek for a little yeah. bit. The problem is you kind of do have to wait it out for the Botox to, to wear off. And, you know, so Botox typically wears off in three months. And if it gets into an area that it wasn't particularly injected into, then it should wear off sooner, like in a month, mm-hmm. like four to six weeks or so. But with that said, again, up Neek is a pretty good drop. Um, keep in mind that it's going to mainly work on Mueller's muscle. So you'll get a couple millimeters of lift, which is probably all you, you know, all you need. Um, but, um, yeah, that was, um, a really like interesting thing. Cause I've not ever actually seen that happen. If Botox yeah. solid, I've only seen like the one side, but I think hers was just so dramatic that it was mm-hmm. like a lot. <laughs> No, she was really open about it. I, mm-hmm. I, I think I know what you're talking about, Rob, because when I saw that too, it was on Instagram and everything. And I was like, she was all over, like a lot of people happening? were responding to her videos yeah. and like, she, yeah. she's really funny too. Yeah. So yeah, yeah it was all humor for her. She yes. was like, don't worry about this. It's going to yeah. be okay. And I'll she totally took it in stride. I was so, yeah. Um, <laughs> We want to take a quick second and thank our sponsor for this episode, which is Cooper Vision. Did you know that more than 40% of Americans have myopia? 
The number is increasing at an alarming rate, especially among school-aged children. And it hasn't helped that many have been spending more time indoors or in front of screens during the ongoing pandemic. So fortunately, us optometrists have the opportunity as eye care professionals to help slow myopia progression. And when it comes to myopia control in children who are 8 to 12 years of age at the initiation of treatment, My Sight One Day is the one for myopia control. It may be the one for your age-appropriate patients as well. And we have good news. Certification is now open to all eye care professionals for Cooper Vision's Brilliant Futures Myopia Management Program featuring MySight One Day, the first and only soft contact lenses FDA approved to slow myopia progression in children aged 8 to 12 at the initiation of treatment. Once you complete your certification, you will also have access to resources and support that will help you communicate with parents, grow myopia control in your practice, and make a difference for age-appropriate children with myopia. So act today and change tomorrow. To get started, talk with your CooperVision sales rep or visit coopervision.com for more information. Now, back to our interview. Yeah, but uh, Dr. Khan, you already kind of talked about this topic, but um, aside from invasive surgery, you also perform Botox and facial filler injections, Mm -hmm. chemical and laser skin resurfacing, and topical skincare. Mm -hmm. So what particular ocular conditions can benefit from these non-invasive procedures? Yeah, sure. So, um, well, so I do think um, you know, people always talk about like preventative Botox and stuff. Right. And I would say that that definitely has a role. I think for people who don't want to develop deep seated wrinkles that are there at rest, um, the more we can chemically treat or, you know, um, train our muscles to not repetitively make those movements, it does help in keeping our skin, um, you know, just looking a little more youthful as we continue to age. Um, so I, well, some, I mean, Botox has so many different uses, right? So off-label, we'll use it in a million different ways. So um, I've, like, for people who have excessive tearing, so epiphora, um, I will, um, you know, I'll evaluate them, of course, to see kind of, is it like a reflexive tearing from dry eye issue? Is it a nasolacrimal blockage? Or is it just, you know, over tearing from like overproduction? And I have injected some people in their lacrimal gland with like two and a half units about a Botox. Um, and I've had pretty good results with it. So for people who are either not good surgical candidates or they just don't want to do surgery, even though they truly have a blockage, um, it's not a bad, um, you know, thing to try. And what I have found is for one reason or another injected into that gland, it doesn't always need like every three months you know, they might have like Mm. a good result for like six to nine months sometimes, or even more like, so, um, I think that that's definitely, um, a cool usage of Botox. And I'm, I would hope that at some point that gets FDA approval because, um, I think it should be an option on the table for people, um, you know, so they don't have to do out of pocket if they don't want to. Um, you know, I had an interesting conversation with a colleague, um, and mentor of mine, um, so actually recently, um, I had a, uh, she's a pregnant patient and 
Um, she has a very recurrent history of developing very angry looking styes and acute chalasia. And I think that it is hormonally related, you know, just because it's not really been an issue for her in the past, but it's, I mean, we'll treat them. Um, we've done a little bit of both where we've um, had to do like some incision drainage or like needle decompressions or um, doing just a small local steroid injection. And um, and she, she gets better, but then they either come, like, they'll come back on all four of the lids and, you know, oh. my hands are tied, right? I can't do very much with her being pregnant right now. And one of my mentors actually mentioned, and I don't know that I would do this right now, probably just wait for her to deliver, but Botox actually, um, there's been some people who have used Botox injections, like again, just one to two units, probably right, um, into the sty and, um, probably helping with um, relaxing the muscular contracture that leads to overproduction of the oils. Mm -hmm. So, you know, kind of a neat, like, um, you know, thought behind it, but it's supposed to have great results there as well. Um, I don't specifically do IPL along the lid margins, but I do know of a lot of people who do. And um, I think it makes sense. You know, you're, um, you know, same thing with like lipid flow and different things where it's the, both the manual manipulation as well as, you know, um, uh, like heat treatment um, near the lid margin to allow for, you know, trapped oil secretions to kind of get out of the way and just keep the, um, the outflows clear. Um, but yeah, we have some pretty neat, you know, tie-ins, um, where we can use aesthetic treatments to our advantage. I've had, um, a handful of patients who, um, have had, um, eyelid surgery done oftentimes with like general plastic surgeons and where they might've had too much skin taken out, um, from either the upper or lower eyelid. And actually for people, um, in that category, you know, it's, it's tough surgically to fix them. And I have fixed, you know, and revised some people who have come to me from outside surgeons. Um, but, um, I have a handful who will just want to do like a little bit of filler just mm -hmm. to give them that little bit of vertical, um, you know, lengthening of the lid to give them, um, just better closure. Um, and so they're not, you know, drying out. Um, yeah, so there's, um, you know, I think if you just like think a little outside the box and <laughs> start to get creative, like you can find some, you know, like good solutions that don't always mm -hmm. have to involve doing surgery. Yeah. I remember, um, we had an episode with Dr. Laura Perryman as well on dry eye disease. And I remember her mentioning that fillers under the, the lower eyelid will push the eyelid up. So like for me, like I have leg ophthalmus, I sleep with my eyelids open. She's like, if you just got fillers under the eyes, your eyelid, you know, gets pushed up vertically and your eyes would be able to close. And I yep. just, you know, I've never thought of fillers under the eyes for medical purposes, right? It's always right. for aesthetics. And, um, and so now I have another reason to go get it done. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you've, you've gone through, um, a lot of detail already on reasons to, get procedures done for ptosis and chalasia, which are, I think the, I guess the most common reasons why maybe optometrists are referring to oculoplastic surgeons. Um, but as an optometrist in general, then would you mind summarizing how else can we know when to refer our patients to an oculoplastic surgeon as in, are there common or particular conditions and signs we should be looking out for to start that conversation? Yeah. So, you know, I think, um, 
one other issue that I feel like gets maybe underdiagnosed and depending like regionally where you live, it gets chalked up to allergies is just over tearing. Okay. And, um, you know, like I know in Austin, we have like terrible allergies. So, um, it's not uncommon for people to have like, you know, sniffly nose and like, you know, tearing and stuff. But, um, I think there's a good proportion of people who have just like you know, become used to the idea of like, they have to wipe their face often, you know, they're tearing a lot. Um, and I think that that's probably a very general thing that, you know, like dry eyes got to be one of the number one complaints that walks into optometry to general ophthalmology to all of our doors. And um, so I think teasing out, you know, for people who are, because we usually have to explain this, right? Like if you're tearing a lot, it may be a symptom of dry eye, like paradoxically, right? But, um, you know, uh, at least, and I don't know if this is something that you guys would want to do or just, you know, consider sending, but, um, um, you know, flushing the tear duct gives you a lot of information. Mm -hmm. And um, so I'll do that pretty frequently with people just to see, because it's two things. Number one, it's diagnostic, right? So if you have a blockage, it'll help localize that for you. Um, it'll help determine to what extent it is too, right? Like, did they taste some of the solution? Did you get a lot of reflux coming back? Um, and the number two, it's therapeutic as well, right? So, I mean, I always say to them, it's like pushing like Drano through a pipe, right? So yeah. if you have mineral stones or something blocking the tear duct, hopefully this helps it along. And then mm -hmm. I'll do like a, um, steroid antibiotic drop taper for like two to three weeks. Um, and then see them back in about three to four weeks as well. But, um, I think identifying those patients is also important. Um, I think, uh, I think sometimes we wait for people to bring these concerns up to us, right? And I also get that in a high volume clinic, like where you're seeing a lot of things, you know, it's hard to sit down and be like, hey, do your lids bother you do this? But um, I think that one thing that's also helped, um, especially like um, in my intake forms is I'll have people kind of write out, you know, do they have any specific concerns about like, how their eyelids feel at the end of the day. Do they feel heavy? You know, they go to read and like, now you're looking down and it's been the whole day and, you know, they're just really tired or like you're struggling to watch TV or whatever it is. And um, so I think asking a couple of targeted questions, just even in their intake form before they get to you might at least get the wheel spinning so that mm -hmm. they might be more inspired to ask you, you know, in the room and then get that conversation initiated. I was, um, I was just thinking about this when I refer people for, um, like blepharoplasty and all these kind of things, I just realized they end up seeing a general ophthalmologist mm -hmm. a lot of the mm -hmm. times. So how does, so how does that exactly work? So if you're, cause you're like the expert in this particular area. So if it's mm -hmm. like, if, if they're unable to do the surgery, is it like, do they have to find someone in your field to do that or and so I'm curious, I don't know how it works in Canada, but so we sometimes get the same issue come through as well, right? Where like maybe like optometry will send directly first to general ophthalmology right. and then yeah. they'll do an evaluation and then they'll refer out again. Yeah. But like, I personally like to foster good relationships with you guys directly because I feel like it's just adding one extra step sometimes, right? I do know that in some areas, a general ophthalmologist might be all they have. And then mm -hmm. maybe they're performing some, you know, like functional blepharoplasty, cirrhosis repairs or something. But um, 
and what I fear is like, you know, these patients will like, sometimes if they're not directed exactly into the right spot, they'll, they'll end up in like, um, like for instance, I, um, did a case this last week on a patient who had a ptosis repair by a general plastic surgeon, which is oh. really unusual because typically yeah. general plastic surgery won't do ptosis. They'll do blood yeah. perplasties, but well, the patient is like super overcorrected. And so, you know, she was <laughs> retracted. And, um, so I ended up, you know, doing like another levator re, uh, reinsertion, but it's always more challenging, right, to do the revisions. Um, so sometimes I feel like these patients might already be thinking in their minds, yeah, I want to do something with my eyelids. I'm going to probably need to go to plastic surgery. And, and it's mm. too bad. I think the awareness of our specialty is just not there. Yeah. And I get it. It's not an immediate link to be like, oh, I need to go to my ophthalmologist to get this done. Right. So, mm. um, yeah. so I think part of the challenge for us is also just like, and I'm working on creating more special awareness in every yeah. single way I can. Yeah. That's why you're here. <laughs> like, this is so helpful because I yeah. think, uh, yeah, I mean, the more, you know, like, you know, we can see patients and, you know, give them the best possible, most specialized, um, you know, care that they need, mm -hmm. like it's better off for everyone. Um, but yeah, so, um, I would say, I think if you figure it's more of a lid issue anyway, or it's just somehow dealing with like the orbit or lack of, I think it's fair game to go ahead and directly refer to oculoplastics mm -hmm. um, uh, as opposed to them having just one more step, right? Because like a cataract, yeah. sure, that makes sense. Go to a yeah. general ophthalmologist first, um, but, um, or even glaucoma, you know, don't, you know, go to your glaucoma specialist. Um, so I, I mean, I think that's fair now. I, and I just don't know, because I think some people have certain requirements that they have to go to a more general practitioner and then to mm. specialized. And so, you know, <laughs> yeah, deep one. I was going to say too, I, I've referred to an oculoplastic surgeon twice. I've referred directly to one, but they're very limited. That's, that's the issue, right? It's, there's only, I think one that I know of. And then so <laughs> like that was also one of the hardest things as a new grad was finding uh, OMDs yeah. who specialize in what. And then you, still think, struggle. you see a lot of general ophthalmologists, but you don't know like who specializes in what. And yeah. it's like, I think that was the biggest challenge when I was a new graduate. Yeah. It was like, I just didn't know who to send my patients to. So I would just yeah. send to the general ophthalmologist till I like, then I saw who they referred to. Then I would like keep a track of like, <laughs> yeah. you send yeah. the patient to here. All right, I'll do that next time. <laughs> it's a lot of like trial and error. It's just yeah. like sending to a clinic and then how do they respond to your referral? Are you happy with it or not? If you're not happy with it, try the next clinic next time. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. True. It's so true. And sometimes I feel like I wish we could all close the loop on things because there's times where I think people get so set in their referral patterns too. Like for instance, so in Austin, which is not a huge city. Now it is the capital of Texas, right? But like, I mean, we have I want to say somewhere between like 13 to 15 oculoplastics people, right? Wow. So, wow. And I mean, I don't know, it was like the, the number of general ophthalmology, but I mean, so that's still a lot of us for a small-ish area. And, um, but for, for like us younger people who have only been there like the last few years, 
Um, there's some very set, like staunch referral patterns that some of the older practitioners are just like, this is who we send to and that's mm -hmm. it. But like, I think, and this isn't all the time, but sometimes I see patients from, you know, having been sent to those other providers and like they either come back not happy or they felt like something was lost and, you know, yeah. and I think it becomes one of those things where, um, it's, you know, it's hard for us with everything we're doing to, you know, to do our due diligence and like follow through on every patient and be like, Hey, were you happy? But, um, so I'll make a point of it. If I ever see patients come back, you know, or come to me from somewhere else, I'll actually just let that provider know if it was optometry or ophthalmology, be like, Hey, <laughs> just saying, I'm starting to see a little pattern here, but, and not that like, you don't have to change anything if you don't want to, but I have a feeling, yeah. you know, they might get a little bit better care if like we just, you know, change, <laughs> change it up a little bit. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but it's, I mean, it's impossible, right. To like, just know, you know, kind of what happens to patients after they leave us sometimes. So that kind of goes into our next question, actually. Um, when we're talking about co-managing patients, I think Rob, you're up next on that yeah. one. Um, so like when we do refer our patients for any um, oculoplastic procedures, how can we co-manage um, those patients with you guys? Yeah. So I think in a couple different ways, and I feel like we don't fully utilize it to our best advantage, right? But yeah. I would say number one, and I, I also don't know if this is something that you, like can't, a lot of Canadian insurances will require, but visual fields are it's hit or miss. Like I was used to, in my training, we would always do a visual field on every <clears throat> necessary bluff, ptosis repair, um, you know, doing a taped and untaped, um, and providing that just as part of our documentation. Um, so I do think that that's gen de definitely somewhere, you know, um, you guys can help and, and just having, I think, because sometimes I'm, you know, if I'm not seeing someone from ophthalmology and they've mm -hmm. just come to me and I'm like, well, I think you might have a, you know, something that can be covered by your insurance, then I might want them to go to you to get just a general eye exam, um, dilated exam, you know, just as like a baseline, right? Like mm -hmm. this is what your eyes look like. Um, you know, this is a visual field. Um, and then I think just even like prescription changes. So people will be like, you know, I'm about to get new glasses or this or that. And I'm like, well, just sit tight, you know, give it a month after your surgery because your prescription might've changed just a little bit from like the lid change position. Um, so, and then, you know, at one month, I think it might be appropriate to actually, you know, mm -hmm. have you see them and be like, okay, yeah. you know. So uh, yeah, I think there are ways and um, I wish that I had more of a rote system with the two, but I sort of take it as patients like bring it up like, um, but I do think it's, you know, something that we can probably, you know, maximize. Mm -hmm. That sounds right. I mean, that makes sense too. You know, if there are, if, especially if they are, like we said, a dry eye patient, you know, someone with a lot of epiphora is going to have a lot of trouble on refraction. And yeah. so, yeah, it does make sense that you'd want to maybe hold off on that prescription. Um, or if they're even getting, like I had a patient with basal cell carcinoma on their conj and so, and their lip. So if they're getting that removed, you know, then their astigmatism might change, you know, the curvature of the cornea changes. Um, so yeah, that actually makes sense, but I never actually like thought about that. I just send to the surgeon and I'm like, whatever the surgeon says, go listen to them. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll see you next year. 
do what I do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But yeah, um, that's pretty much all the questions we had. And honestly, Dr. Khan, you answered those like perfectly. That was so much new information for all of us. And I think a lot of our listeners are going to be learning a lot more with this episode and just getting more intrigued into what oculoplastics is all about. And hopefully our oculoplastic surgeons across the countries get more referrals now from us directly. (laughs) One small step for man, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Is there any final, are there any final thoughts, any other messages that you want to, you know, spread for your profession to our listeners before you go? Yeah. So I think, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about just, you know, fostering relationships in the community. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think, um, like I love that our community is now global, right? Like, I mean, really social media has facilitated so much of that, which is so cool. Um, but I think, you know, making, um, an effort to really get to know the providers in your community. Um, like I've made some really good friends actually like first off Instagram, but then we're like, wait, we're in the same city. Like let's meet, you know? And so I've met like some optometrists that way, some ophthalmologists. And I think it helps, um, just people know that you're there. Number one, I think, um, getting a feel for your personality helps. Um, yeah. you know, that you're not just, you know, a brochure that came in the mail for them to be like, oh, hey, you should send patients to me. Um, and I think that works both ways, right? Like, um, and then I think on top of that, I often will just be like, you know, I love having each other's like contact information. So I'm like, I always tell anyone, like, look, if you have any questions about like the spot looks a little funny to me, or like, what would you say if, you know, about this? And I'll just be like, look, just have, you know, take a picture or whatever with the patient's consent, like, you know, and, yeah. um, but, you know, let me see it. And, you know, I'll give you my feedback or whatever, if you don't, you know, if it doesn't warrant like a whole visit or something, but I think, um, just knowing that we're all there for each other at the end mm-hmm. of the day and yeah. you know, we're helping to serve the same patients, I think it goes a long way. Yeah. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Khan, again, for taking the time to be on our podcast. Um, We'll put all of your information in the description box for everyone to get to know you more. Um, And yeah, we're just looking forward to having everyone learn more about oculoplastics as we go along our optometric journey. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so cool. Thanks again for having me. And um, yeah, looking forward to doing more stuff in the future with (laughs) y'all. Yeah. Thank you to everyone for listening to Four Eyes. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating to give us feedback on how we're doing. You can also check us out on Instagram at Four Eyes Optum for more content. Look out for new episodes every Wednesday. So until then, stay tuned. Stay tuned.